and all this other sort of uh, uh, support uh, was. And you see that even these days, that when I was a young monk, wearing the brown robes was a bit sort of uh, uncommon. These are me this color brown robes. Most of the monks in the cities, they wore the bright yellow robes. And the people always said that the reason they wore the really bright, almost fluorescent robes you saw in Bangkok was to make it safer to cross the busy roads. It was like fluorescent. <laughs> but later on, when the brown forest robes became, uh, um, the forest monks became more popular, these became more popular. So people would actually wear even these brown robes of a forest monk, even though they lived in the city. And just because, you know, to get more support. So, you know, sometimes that people do these things and uh, just to get material well-being rather than for the, the real purpose, which is the spiritual freedoms. So, you know, that's what Susima did. And also, just to make the point that, you know, that Ananda gave him the, uh, the novice ordination, which is called the going forth, and it was the Buddha himself who gave Susima the, the higher ordination. So Susima was going in there to find out why Buddhism was getting so popular. And in those days, I thought, just get the teachings. You get the teachings and then learn them, and then you can recite them to others. And I must admit that, oh, just some of the stories. Are, it's nice to have a few anecdotes to this to fill it out and make it come alive, these teachings. There was a young, a young man came to ordain at Bodhinyana Monastery. He was an Anagarika, he was in the Anagarika block. And then he started describing to one of the other senior monks, you know, whose name won't be mentioned, but you know, he was in Thailand and... Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I think you might know him. <laughs> but anyway, that, you know, he was telling him, he said, oh, this, this Anagarika, He's actually just getting these incredible deep states. He's meditating all afternoon. And, you know, he just started describing, you know, all these incredible states of meditation. And this monk said, just like you described them in the book. And he says, you know, that's what he's, he's getting. And then, you know, I was a bit sort of concerned that, you know, he didn't seem the right type, but who knows? So he's getting all these great states. And then one day, and then this monk was just going past the it was the uh, Anagarika's block. He just happened to see through the window and this man was fast asleep. And so he wasn't meditating. And so when I actually interviewed him and took it seriously, it turned out that you know, he was a homeless boy and he just survived in life you know, just by being such an excellent, please excuse me, but a liar. He could deceive so many people you know, he'd read the book, you know, Mindfulness, Bliss and Beyond, memorized it, amazingly so, and could actually repeat it almost word for word, you know, and was convincing one of the senior monks uh, that what was said in there is what he was experiencing. It was really quite sort of amazing that he could do something like that. And, of course, you know, lying about such things meant that, you know, he couldn't stay in Bodhinana Monastery. And, you know, he said that just, you know, how he'd survived in life was, you know, just by telling people what they wanted to hear. And my goodness, he was so good at that. But he came there and learning the teachings, just learning the teachings, reciting them, is never enough. Sooner or later, you know, you got to be those teachings. 
know, to live them, to have them so inside of you that it's not just, uh, not just <coughs> a theory you're, you're learning to repeat to others. <coughs> it's what you understand yourself. So with this particular case, even in India at the time, this monk called Wanderer Susima became a monk just because he wanted to find out what's really going on, find his teachings, take them back to his friends, and then they could also get lots of, uh, lots of um, support. So, at that time... <coughs> yeah, please, yeah. Mm. Yeah, they never did, yes. And also, exactly. And it might have been, sometimes people say, well, didn't the Buddha suss out, understand that this monk or this person was actually just coming in just to try and, try and um, for the wrong purposes? That's in some of the footnotes there. And there's no explanation there at all, but what they usually say is, no, the Buddha knew what was going to go, what was happening, knew what was going to go on, because it's really important for this series of events to happen, to actually to, to allow a teaching to come down to us. So this seems a little bit sort of unconvincing, but nevertheless, it's a very good point. The Buddha allowed him to go forth without even mentioning a time of probation. Because usually if you come from another tradition, usually you... Um, because this was true in Wapapong. Uh, a monk came along, he said he was a Catholic before, he was a Catholic priest. And he'd got ordained, I think, in another place. But uh, as he was uh, meditating a Wat Papong, one of the monks went past and found there was a, a bottle of wine in his hut. And he said, well, you know, it's not for, uh, for indulgence, but because he's still a Catholic, he has to do the Mass for himself. And you can actually see, well, you know, if you're a Catholic priest, fine. But if you're a Buddhist monk, you've got to be a Buddhist monk. You know, the two there sometimes just don't meet. He's had his, his robes on and everything. So anyway, that was just, that's why sometimes it's good to have a period of probation so that you can uh, learn the basics of what's required, what's expected of a Buddhist monk. And then, <coughs> if you like it, you know, to be ordained. Anyway, there we go. So at that time, several monks and nuns had declared their enlightenment in the Buddha's presence. In other words, they would come up to the Buddha and uh, describe their experiences and uh, their attainments. They would not usually say those attainments to others unless they were monks because uh, there are some very serious penalties. If any monk <coughs> or nun comes and says they've got some of these attainments, they're enlightened or a stream winner or jhanas or stuff like that, and they're just boasting. They know they haven't got those states, but they oh, well, you know, I'm as good as they are, out of pride. Then that's such a serious offense that you cannot continue life as a, as a monk or a nun. It's a disrobable offense, it's very serious. So usually, and even if it's true, and you say that to a, to a, a lay person, that's also a pajiti offense. 
In other words, very clear the Buddha wanted the monks and nuns any attainment which you have to actually you can tell your teacher, maybe tell a couple of uh, fellow monks or fellow nuns, but don't take it further than that. So you keep it quiet. And it's usually the case that monks or nuns who do go around telling that they're this or that, they're not keeping the Vinaya. And that's usually a, a very clear case that they cannot be enlightened. So anyway, several monks and nuns had declared their enlightenment in the Buddha's presence. And they said that we understand rebirth is ended, the spiritual journey has been completed, what had to be done has been done, there is no return to any state of existence. It's a claim of enlightenment. And Venerable Susima heard about this, he went up to those monks and exchanged greetings with them. When the greetings and polite conversations were over, he sat down to one side and said to those monks, is it really true that the Venerables have declared enlightenment in the Buddha's presence? Yes, Reverend, you can say that to another monk. <coughs> but knowing and seeing thus, being enlightened, do you wield the many kinds of psychic power? That is, multiplying yourself and becoming one again, going unimpeded through a wall, a rampart, or a mountain as if through space, <coughs> diving in and out of the earth as if it were water, walking on water as if it were earth, flying cross-legged through the sky like a bird, do you visit the heaven of Brahma? No, Reverend? Well, it's a bit disappointing, you're enlightened, you can't do any of those tricks. Well, knowing and seeing thus, can you, with clear audience, this is purified and superhuman, hear both kinds of, <coughs> sorry, both kinds of sounds, human and divine, whether near or far? No, Reverend? Well, knowing and seeing thus, can you read the minds of others? Do you know that their mind is poisoned with wanting, aversion, delusion or not, or not? Do you know that their mind is contracted with sloth and torpor or not? Or that their mind is scattered with restlessness and remorse or not? Do you, do you, oh, I'm going to down. Do you know that their mind is in jhana, exalted, surpassed, deliberated or not? And they said, well, we knew you were going to say that. No, no, that's not true. They said, no, reverend. They did know. Well, knowing and seeing thus, can you recollect your past lives, even up to a hundred thousand births? Can you remember, there I was so named with such a family, I looked like this and that was my food. This was how I felt pleasure and pain and this, that was how my life ended. When I passed away from that place, I was reborn somewhere else. There too I was so named. This, of such a family, I looked like this and this was my food. This was how I felt pleasure and pain and that was how my life ended. When I, <coughs> sorry, when I passed away from that place, I was reborn here. Can you recollect your many kinds of past lives with features and details? No, Reverend, they answered. Well, knowing and seeing thus, do you with clairvoyance that is purified and superhuman see sentient beings passing away and reappearing, inferior and superior, beautiful and ugly, in a good place or a bad place, and understand how sentient beings are reborn according to their karma. No, Reverend. 
Well, knowing and seeing thus, do you have direct meditative experience of the immaterial attainments? And those are the mind base of unlimited space, the mind base of unfathomable unfathom oh, consciousness, the mind base of nothingness, the mind base of neither perception or non-perception, no reverend. Well, now venerables, how could there be such a declaration of enlightenment when these things are not attained? I mean, Reverend Susima, we are freed by wisdom. Upanya Vimuti. I don't understand the meaning of what you have said. Please elaborate so I may understand the meaning. Reverend Susima, whether you understand or not, we are freed by wisdom. Now, at this particular time, I have translated it very clearly, accurately, with a couple of um, uh, uh, what are they called? The little um, uh, pitching errors, unfathomable spelling errors, sorry. But where they usually um, assume that uh, <coughs> that um, it's an attainment without the jhanas, all it actually says here is that well, knowing and seeing thus, do you have direct meditative experience of the immaterial attainments? And they say no. And this is usually the difference between someone who is uh, a both ways liberated or just liberated through wisdom. It's a, um, a quote which comes later on in this afternoon's uh, presentation. Unfortunately, it's only in the Pali, uh, but it was shows the difference between liberated both ways and liberated on one side only. Both of them uh, include having experience of the four jhanas. The difference is whether they have the experience of the immaterial attainments. And even if they have uh, attainment of the immaterial attainments, it doesn't always mean that they get the psychic powers as well. So uh, just because it says, that it doesn't say they're liberated through wisdom, and it says nothing about the, the jhanas, doesn't mean the liberation of wisdom occurs without the jhanas. Maybe just, it's not the best here, but can you just uh, scroll down to the bottom? It's in the Pali. You got that, the, the last part? Yeah, I think you can, you can um, number 44 and 45 of Anguta Ninth, okay. Panya Vimuti, Panya Vimuti, that's uh, liberated through wisdom, Panya. Uh, how is that, Kitabata, what does that mean? Panya Vimuti, and Bhagwa to the Buddha. And it said, first of all, Vivichewa Kamehi Patamang Janang Upasampaja Viharati. That's the first jhana. And then you understand that with wisdom. The se <coughs> second jhana, the third jhana. And for the Panya Vimuti, they at least have the jhanas. For those who are scholars, maybe listening in, or those who are here, where it says in the end, the, uh, the uh, what is called the four immaterial attainments, which they have afterwards, uh, in the party text version, the party text version of the, is it right behind me? Here it is. In the party text versions of uh, these uh, 
suttas in the Pali, the one wonderful thing about the Pali Text Society is they do not just base their translation on one manuscript, but they compare many manuscripts or whatever they can find. And they list here that under the Panyavimuti Sutta, the explanation of liberation through wisdom, they say many of the uh, many of the uh, manuscripts which they have, they do admit they don't have the immaterial attainments under the Panyavimuti, the one who's liberated by wisdom, which is far more consistent with what is being said in the Susima Sutta and also in many other uh, suttas. That uh, <coughs> sometimes even the manuscripts which we have uh, over many years have been um, copied and especially copied not very carefully and some manuscripts do not have uh, for a Panyawimuti that is liberated by wisdom any mention of the immaterial attainments but they do have always the four jhanas. And the Ubhattobhaga Vimuti, that is someone who is liberated both ways, and liberated both ways, you can see there, even though you don't know Pali, Patamang Jhanang, <coughs> Dutya Jhanang, and all of those are there, and they certainly all, the manuscripts, do have the immaterial attainments as well. So I just put that down for any scholars to uh, reinforce the idea. Liberated both ways means with the jhanas and the immaterial attainments. Liberated on just with wisdom on one side is with the jhanas but not with the immaterial attainments. <coughs> any questions or comments on that? Have I confused you all? Yeah. Yeah, liberated just on the basis of those four jhanas. They never went as far as the immaterial attempts. And it does <coughs> seem, even from this sutta, well it's not actually uh, that true, that if you have immaterial attainments and if you have, uh, they're more likely to have some of the psychic powers. But that's not always the case. Even with jhanas, some people get psychic powers. And even if you have psychic powers, does that mean you've, you've got enlightenment? Please mention one famous individual who had psychic powers and was certainly not enlightened. <laughs> Thank you very much, you all pass. Devadatta, he was a Buddha's cousin. And uh, he could, uh, well, he got really famous that he... Uh, <coughs> He always getting a bit sort of jealous of his cousin the Buddha, and once he got some nice psychic powers, he appeared on the new on the king's lap as a snake. Just imagine you're sitting there and this big snake appeared, uh, and then he turned into Devadatta, and of course you know, the king was very impressed with that. So those are the sort, and so sent him lots and lots of uh, gifts. So and of course later on that uh, Devadatta uh, became. Uh, too proud and even tried to kill the Buddha, to assassinate him. 
and the same with <coughs> that monk I was mentioning in Wapapong, the monk which I knew, only very briefly, because he was just there when I first went there, who de did develop the uh, power of clairaudience, who could hear what people were saying five, six kilometers away. You know, tested out, it was true, and he got so proud that he thought he was even better than Ajahn Chah and sat in his seat one day. And Ajahn Chah was very skilled in these matters, took him aside. On the next day, this monk sort of realized he'd you know, gone too far and uh, bowed to all of the monks, even though he was really senior. And even to me, I was only just visit, uh, just I don't think I was really accepted into the Sangha there yet, just uh, first time coming up there to visit. And everyone, he bowed to ask forgiveness and then disappeared. He just went away quietly living by himself somewhere. And it was a fascinating thing to witness. There was someone who really did have a psychic power, but because you know, it was a great thing to be able to do, then, deci then decided that, was, uh, that he was superior than other people. Similar to Devadatta, but Devadatta was, was far worse. So, <coughs> just because you've got psychic powers does not mean you're enlightened. Uh, just because you're enlightened doesn't mean you have psychic powers. So anyway, here we go. Uh, <coughs> so, Susima went to see the Buddha, bowed, sat down to one side, and informed the Buddha of all he had discussed with those monks. And the Buddha replied to him, Susima, first comes the deep insight into the immutability of natural law of the Dhamma, then comes the deep realization of Nibbana. So, <coughs> so I don't understand the meaning of what you have said. Please elaborate the meaning. Reverend Susima, whether you understand or not, first comes a deep insight into the immutability of natural law, then comes a deep realization of Nibbana. So in other words, when you understand how things work, you understand where things come from, you understand <coughs> the nature of the Dhamma, you understand that whether uh, whoever you are, that that's uh, cause and effect, the way the world works, the way the mind works, is immutable, whether you believe in it or you don't believe in it, uh, whether you're enlightened or you're not enlightened, uh, whoever you are, wherever you are, this immutable law of the Dhamma always holds. And that's, he said, that's what you understand first of all. Once you understand the situation, how things work, then you understand sort of Nibbana. It's just like if you understand you have a problem in the car and you can't understand why uh, it's not working properly, you understand the immutable fact that the car needs petrol and you haven't put anything in, then you understand why your car's not working. Or the other simile about that man, I think the nuns know this because they thought it was very funny the last time I told it, the man who went to see the doctor, he said, what's wrong with you? My whole body hurts. What do you mean your whole body hurts? When I touch my head, it hurts. You know, when I <coughs> touch my throat, it hurts. When I touch my arm, it hurts. When I touch my tummy, it hurts. When I touch my knee, it hurts. It hurts all over. And the doctor said, that's oh, because you've got a broken finger. <laughs> oh, you thought it was funny too, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so when you understand that it hurts because you've been born, <laughs> this is what the world is, the immutability of the Once you understand the problem is, then the experience and realization of Nibbana should happen afterwards. In a, doesn't matter how long it takes, but it will happen. You understand the mess you're in, you're in a prison, and the doors open, and of course, if you really understand that, you'll get out. So, that's you know, just my little explanation for you. So, what do you think, Susima? Does the body persist, or does it disintegrate? You just have to look around to see <laughs> many of you are disintegrating. So, some <laughs> more advanced in your decrepitude than others. <laughs> Getting faster and faster. And he said, disintegrates, Venerable Sir. Now, you can see the change in little uh, uh, translation. Instead of permanent or impermanent, you know, that's a bit too philosophical. Let's get it down to, is it persist or disintegrate? You can see disintegration is a much better word for impermanent there. It disintegrates, Venerable Sir. It's what disintegrates suffering or happiness. <laughs> That's a pretty obvious answer. Suffering, Venerable Sir. Is what disintegrates is suffering and subject to change, fit to be guarded thus. This is mine, this I am, this is a permanent essence. If this body was your permanent essence, you'd be in bigger trouble than you know. <laughs> You're going to carry on like this and get worse and worse. Oh my goodness. So it can't be a permanent essence of soul. It can't belong to you. If it did belong to you, then you could be able to do something about it. So, no venerable sir. Does experience, Vedna, persist or disappear? Does perception persist or disappear? Does will stay the same or come and go and alter? That's Sankara. Our consciousness is constant or changing, always changing, venerable sir. Is what is always changing, suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir. Why? It's because you're having a really good time and then it stops. And it's totally out of control. Sometimes you have a beautiful afternoon. Things are wonderful, it's sunny and the birds are singing and you're listening to a nice suitor class and everything is wonderful and happy and then you go outside and I don't know what's happened. Something's gone wrong. So <laughs> consciousnesses and their, their content are always changing. So, because they're changing, suffering or happiness, suffering. Is what is in constant suffering and subject to change, fit to be regarded thus. This is mine, this I am, this is the permanent essence, no venerable sir. So, <coughs> Susima, you should truly see any kind of form at all, past, future or present, internal or external, coarse or fine, inferior or superior, far or near, all form, all bodies, all stuff, with right understanding. This is not mine. I am not this. This cannot be a permanent essence. You should truly see any kind of feeling at all, past, future or present, internal or external, coarse or fine, inferior or superior, far or near. This is all experience I should have put there. With right understanding. This is not mine. I am not this. This cannot be a permanent essence. We should see, truly see any kind of perception at all, past, future or present, 
internal or external, coarse or fine, inferior or superior, far or near, all perception with right understanding. This is not mine, I am not this, this cannot be of permanent essence. You should truly see any kind of will at all, past, future or present, you know what you did in the past, was it you? Was it your deeds? Are you responsible? Any kind of will in the past. Uh, future or present, internal or ex external, coarse or fine, inferior or superior, far or near, all will with right understanding. This is not mine, I am not this, this cannot be a permanent essence. You should truly see any kind of consciousness at all, past, future or present, internal or external, coarse or fine, inferior or superior, original consciousness or universal consciousness, I put that in there, I just, it didn't say that in there, but I justified that by saying the Buddha said all types of consciousness. So I can put that in as well. Far or near, all consciousnesses with right understanding, this is not mine, I am not this, this cannot be a permanent essence. <coughs> Seeing this, these are the five components of existence. They're not mine, they're not me, not a permanent essence. Suffering, in, uh, you can't depend upon them. Seeing this, a learned, noble disciple experiences revulsion towards material stuff. Revulsion <coughs> means that, not negativity, you think, just what am I doing this? Is a way out? Why don't I take the escape? Revulsion towards mysterious stuff, revulsion towards experience, revulsion towards perception, revulsion towards will, revulsion towards consciousnesses. Remember that revulsion, the word is nibida, it is what I kept on calling the uh, ejector seat from the wheel of samsara. Experience revulsion, the five components of existence fade away. Fading away there is freedom. When freed, the knowledge arises that it is freed. They understand rebirth is ended. The spiritual journey has been completed. What had to be done has been done. There is no return to any state of existence. So, that's a standard teaching of non-self and suffering and impermanence. So then, having taught that, this is the immutable Dhamma. Do you see that rebirth is the cause for old age and death? You now you get reborn again, doesn't matter where you get reborn, you can get old and die. Yes, sir. Do you see that existence is the cause for rebirth? And these are called the planes of existence. This word is bawa, it's a very difficult word, often mistranslated as becoming. It's not becoming, it's not uh, that particular tense, it's being. They have uh, places like Manasabhava, the existence in the human realm, uh, the animal bower, the plane of existence of animals. So this is like planes of existence, places where you can get reborn into. Uh, this is planes of existence. Mm. Yes, sir, do you see that fuel tasting things up? That's the literal meaning of upadana. Upa means the same in English as upa, and ardana, to take up. That taking things up is a cause for creating states of existence. Yes, sir. Do you see that craving is a cause for taking things up? Yes, sir. 
Do you see that experience is a cause for craving? Contact is a cause for experience. The six sense fields are the cause for contact. Name and form are a cause for six sense fields. And consciousness are a cause for name and form. Will is a cause for consciousness and delusion is a cause for will. That's standard dependent origination. From ignorance, delusion, I, we uh, prefer it. That is where will comes from. The will, the sense of a self. So you've got to do something, you've got to struggle. The main awija is the sense of I am, or this is me, and I can find some happiness if I strive. And because of the will, you strengthen the consciousnesses. And with the consciousnesses, you need, need the name and the form, the objects of consciousness. And the six sense spaces, often I wonder, what are the, especially the five senses doing there? And the five senses are constructed uh, for your will to explore this sense world with the thought that somewhere in the sense world you can find some happiness, some satisfaction and some um, sense of fulfillment. Uh, one of the greatest of those similes I remember from elsewhere uh, is that just like you throw a dog a bone which is smeared with um, the, you know, some blood and so the, the, the dog expecting it can get some satisfaction from the bone but actually taste you know the food got a little bit of blood on it taste it but can't get any further than the taste still as hungry as it was afterwards and they said that's a simile for the sense pleasures it promises fulfillment but never satisfies never fulfills uh, so from Delusion comes the will, and the will causes the consciousness, and the consciousness, uh, together with the will, create the, the sense fields, the sense experience, and with the experience is always the thing about picking things up, taking things up. This is one of those similes elsewhere, which I thought was an original Ajahn Brahm, when I found that the Buddha got there much earlier than I did, it was a bit spooky because I'm sure I never read that in this life. I said, like taking things up, why is it even probably watching me? I take things up, I put that down, and I take something else up. You fiddle with this and you fiddle with that. Have you ever noticed that when you have a hand, it's always fiddling with something, always taking things up? Because that's the, the, that's the purpose of having a hand, you pick things up. I challenge you not to pick anything up for one day. You can't do that. Because <laughs> that's the nature of a hand, that's what it does. So I thought, how can you stop picking things up with the hand? There's only one way, cut the hand off. Now this is only a metaphor, I'm not going to do this. But if you did take the hand off, of course you won't be able to pick things up. So what's the, the uh, only way to stop picking things up? Upadana is actually to cut off the thing which picks things up. And that is the sense of self. That's what the sense of I does. It always picks things up and does stuff. So that's how only time the Upadana will stop is when the sense of I and self disappear. And I thought, wow, what an original simile that was. Until you saw the simile of the hand 
taught by the Buddha so much <laughs> earlier than I did. That was both interesting, because I never read that before. Interesting, but also freaky. Anyway, so that's how you stop. But when you start picking things up, because of craving, because of the thirst, that's another a meaning for craving. Then from the craving, you actually create planes of existence. And that's where you get reborn afterwards. We fantasize, we dream of where we want to be. You create that world. And very often that's where you get reborn. And when you get reborn, then you have the old age and death. Wheel goes round. So you know, that's just basic dependent origination. And also a dependent origination, dependent cessation. That when rebirth ceases, you don't have any more rebirth, of course, old age and death ceases. Yeah. See, when planes of existence cease, you stop making planes of existence, then you've got no place to get reborn into, there's no rebirth. Yes, sir. Do you see that when taking things up, upadana, the fuel, causes states of existence, so when taking things up ceases, states of existence cease. When craving ceases, taking things up cease. When the experience ceases, the craving ceases. You don't want anything. When contact ceases, experience ceases, six sense fuel cease, contact ceases. Six senses, not just the five senses, it's the mind as well, cease. Contact ceases when the name and form, the objects of, of the uh, consciousnesses cease. So six senses will cease. When consciousness ceases, the objects of consciousness cease. When the will ceases, consciousness ceases. When delusion ceases, will ceases. Yes, sir. But knowing and seeing thus, do you wield the many kinds of psychic power, Susima? No, sir. Well, knowing and seeing thus, do you, with clear audience that is purified and superhuman, hear both kinds of sound, human and divine, whether near or far? No, sir. Well, knowing and seeing thus, <coughs> do you understand the minds of other beings and individuals, having comprehended them with your mind? No. Knowing and seeing thus, do you recollect many kinds of past lives with features and details? No, sir. Well, knowing and seeing thus, do you, with clairvoyance that is purified and superhuman, see sentient beings passing away and being reborn according to their karma? No. Well, knowing and seeing thus, do you have direct meditative experience of the mere material attainments? No, sir. Well, now, Susima, how could there be such a declaration when these things are not attained? So you understand <coughs> some of the, the ways of the Dhamma, the uh, basic principles of the Dhamma, or at least accepting them, but the enlightenment is far greater. And it hasn't got any psychic powers, obviously. So, how could there be such a declaration when these things are not attained? Then Venerable Susima bowed with his head at the Buddha's feet and said, I have made a mistake, sir. It was foolish, stupid and unskillful of me to go forth as a thief in such a well-explained teaching and training. Please, sir, accept my mistake for what it is, so I will restrain myself in future. Indeed, Susima, you made a mistake. It was foolish, stupid and unskillful of you to go forth as a thief in such a well-explained teaching and training. Suppose I were to arrest a bandit, a criminal, and present him to the king, saying, Your Majesty, this is a bandit, a criminal. Punish him as you, him as you will. 
And the king would say, go my men and tie this man's arms tightly behind his back with a strong rope. Shave his head. I don't know why they always just shave people's head as a matter of punishment. That didn't happen to you, did it? <laughs> no. But in those days, shaving a person's head was like a punishment. And marching from street to street and from square to square to the beating of a harsh drum. Then take him out of the south gate and there to the south of the city, chop off his head. The king's men would do as they were told. What do you think, Susima? Wouldn't that man experience pain and distress because of that? Yes, sir. But although that man would experience pain and distress because of that, going forth as a thief in such a well-explained teaching and training has a more painful and bitter result. It even leads to the underworld. So, just saying, it's a bad thing he did. But, what happens next? But since you have recognized your mistake for what it is, and have dealt with it properly, I accept it. For it is growth in the training of the Noble One to acknowledge a mistake for what it is, deal with it properly, and commit to restraint in the future. The old acknowledge, forgive, and learn. So you, you acknowledge the mistake for what it is. Uh, deal with it properly, commit to restraint in the future. Deal with it properly, is now forgive it, don't punish yourself commit to restraint in the future, learn from it. So when I do acknowledge, forgive, learn, it's not just invented by myself, that is just what, one of the things which really impressed me with the teaching of the Buddha, that no punishment, yeah, you could be punished, but as long as you acknowledge it, then this is where the growth happens. So there was, I mentioned that teaching because sometimes people say, oh, that just teaches that uh, you don't need the jhanas to become uh, liberated through wisdom. And of course it never says that at all. It says that you're not experiencing the immaterial attainments. But, as was, comes afterwards, it certainly is liberated. The Fumpanya Vimuta and Ubhata Vimuta, you are liberated uh, through wisdom. You still have to have the, the jhanas. There was one piece of advice which I've repeated many times here and which very fortunate to get from the mouth of uh, Venerable Jnana Ponika. Venerable Jnana Ponika was a great German-born monk who did a lot of translations. Oh, where's the other book I have here? Just in case people want to look at the Kitagiri This Discourse of the Buddha, oh this was Jnana Modi, sorry. Uh, Jnana Ponika uh, did many, many translations and Many of his translations you know, were wonderful to read, very accurate. But uh, when I was visiting him, we were discussing with Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi, Venerable Yana Ramata, uh, and who else was there? Oh, there was Ron Battersby. <laughs> he was there. And that's Bianca's partner. And one thing he said there in a discussion always stayed with me where he said that you should never, when <coughs> you are learning the word of the Buddha, the suttas, never interpret an ambiguous part of the Buddha's teachings. So never interpret the whole of the Buddha's teachings, a clear part of the Buddha's teachings, in accordance with an ambiguous part. 
of the Buddha's teachings, but always interpret the ambiguous part in line with all the very clear teachings of the Buddha, which are in the majority. And of course you all know, sutta after sutta, the way to enlightenment, eightfold path, eightfold path, eightfold path, which does always include the four jhanas. So not only uh, should a, a red flag come up for people who think, oh, Susima Sutta, Kitagiri Sutta is saying that you can become enlightened without the jhanas, that would be contradictory to what's said elsewhere in the suttas. And also, today hopefully, when I've read this sutta out, pointing out was where sometimes people look, <coughs> look at this and they say, well, knowing and seeing that you have direct meditative experience of the immaterial attainments, they say the peaceful attainments uh, which are without any form. If you don't translate that accurately, people feel that that means the jhanas. It does not. It only means the immaterial attainments, which is how I've translated it here. So that means you do have to do the jhanas. And it's also just saying something about the usual teachings of the Buddha, that these things, uh, the three, the five characteristics, the five components of existence, the fact that uh, analyzing them means they are impermanent, unreliable, cannot be regarded as a source of happiness, therefore cannot be a permanent self. And that the dependent origination, how we do, we get reborn that these are immutable dhammas, whether Buddha arises or not, person understands or not. So understand those first of all, and from those immutable dhamma, eventually then enlightenment will happen. Any comments, questions, complaints? Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. We know, we know the Buddha is perfectly enlightened. Does that imply you can be imperfectly enlightened? <laughs> yeah. Is, uh, when they say perfectly enlightened, that's usually the term for Sama Sambuddha, uh, which means that they always say enlightened by himself without a teacher. So, there is, when you say perfectly, sometimes perfectly self-enlightened, but the self doesn't have really a place in there. And that starts to lead to a, a controversy, uh, which was even part of the, uh, the Melinda Panha, the points of uh, controversy, uh, which was certainly, it belongs to the Abhidharma, and that's where it's part, part of the Tripitaka. But that was obviously, very clearly, uh, many hundreds, uh, 150 years or so, some people differ in their timing after the Parinibbana Buddha. But there, they said that some people say that when the Buddha arrived in this world as Siddhartha Gotama, that he was a once-returner, a Sakadagami. Was born as a Sakadagami. And was one of the reasons why, when he did his seven steps and said, this is my last life, that there was a reason for that, because he was a Sakadagami. And 
that one of the things which convinced me that that argument has some merit was the Gatikara Sutta. In the Gatikara Sutta, uh, in the Majjhima Nikaya, there the Buddha recalled a previous life as, I always get it wrong, Jyotipala or Jyotipana? Jyotipala, thank you. Jyotipala, uh, and Jyotipala was a, uh, a very uh, close disciple of, sorry, no, Gatikara was a close disciple of, of Kasapa Buddha. So this was the Buddha recording a previous life. And he said, this Jyotipala uh, was Gatikara's friend. Jyotipala didn't want to have anything at all to do with religion and even called uh, Kasapa the Buddha, who was his best friend's teacher, he called Kasapa the Buddha a, a shaving-headed good-for-nothing, basically. And Gatikara, his best friend, was a very uh, good disciple of Kasapa the Buddha, even an anagami, a non-returner. I was trying everything to get his best friend to see Kasapa the Buddha. Eventually tricked his best friend Jyotipala to see Kasapa the Buddha, at which point Jyotipala uh, was inspired and became a monk with Kasapa the Buddha. And the story Gatikara Sutta goes on to what happened to Gatikara next. And Jyotipala uh, is not really mentioned except at the very end of the sutta, where our current Buddha said, I was Jyotipala in a previous life. The Buddha is saying that he was a monk, a bhikkhu, under Kasapa the Buddha. So unless one just says, oh, that's just made up. But there is another sutta which reaffirms that connection. So it's not just in one place in the suttas. In the <coughs> Devaputta Samyutta, it was uh, Gatikara, now uh, a heavenly being in the Sudawasa, which is where Anagamis get reborn. <coughs> Gatikara was one of the heavenly beings who came to visit the Buddha at Bodhgaya under the Bodhi tree just after the Buddha's enlightenment. And there Gatikara, now a deva, said, congratulations, you know, you're now a Buddha. I was up in the, the Sudawasa where Anagamis go. We were together in our previous life as under Kasapa the Buddha. Two old friends congratulating one another. Or rather Gatikara doing most of the congratulations because he was a Buddha. But old friends, now one a Buddha now another, just uh, still in the, the Sudawasa, the, as a non-returner. And when, if you can accept that, and there's no reason why not, Gautama the Buddha, our Buddha, has had a previous life under Kasapa the Buddha. And you would have thought, would have learned something under Kasapa the Buddha. Where did, there's another sutta which says that if a person does attain to being a once returner, once returner are mostly born in the two sutta realm. 
And of course, we all know that that's where the Buddha uh, came from before his, his <coughs> birth uh, in Lumbini. So, joining the dots is a very strong case that the Buddha uh, was a disciple under Kasapa the Buddha and would have learned the Dhamma there. And under, yeah, and under the Bodhi tree, first watch of the night, remember his previous lives. And of course he remembered his previous lives. That was a very close one. Surely he would have remembered powerful life under a previous Buddha. He remembered the Dhamma. So, was the Buddha really self-taught? Or did he get those teachings from a previous life under Kasapa, the Buddha? I would actually probably say the evidence is quite strongly he did. Anyway, you had a question. Uh, Ajahn Brahm, if the Buddha is a once returner, um, why does he still have sexual desire? Like, why did he still able oh, to have children? Oh, once returners still have sexual desire. There's one very famous one. The, uh, not Sarakani, Isidata and Purana, wasn't it? Isidata and Purana, they were brothers or cousins. They were related together. And when they passed away, uh, they said, Buddha said, oh, they were both uh, once returners. I said, how can they be? Sort of, because uh, I think one of them was married, is well known, enjoying his sensual pleasures. The other one was keeping eight precepts. And the Buddha said, yeah, one of, the, one of those uh, Isidata Purana, one of them uh, had still strong sensual attachment, but enormous wisdom. It was incredibly strong in wisdom. And he said the other one was really restrained, but not as much wisdom. But the two together, they were once returning. Ajahn, uh, that uh, if the Buddha was a uh, non-returner, yeah. then the Brahma, the Gatikara, would have said we were mates in the Suddhavasa, but he said we were together in the in the previous life, no. With once, once returners don't go to Sudawasa, non-returners go to Sudawasa. Oh, sorry, non-returner? Yeah. So, so then, then he would have said... Once, yeah, he's yeah. a once-returner. Yeah, we, oh, once-returner. Once-returner, yes, sorry. Once-returner. I didn't pronounce it okay. accurately. Thank oh, you. Once-returner. And on this one, Ajahn, that uh, uh, the Sutta, this, what you just now taught... Uh, uh, Susima, yeah? Yeah, Susima Sutta. The, the expressly what is mentioned is that immaterial jhana is not required. So is there an inference here then that the, what you are saying is inferred that this is arupa uh, avachara, um, isn't it? Jhana, immaterial jhana. So uh, material jhana, that is the four jhanas are called material jhanas? It is uh, called Material is called rupa. Rupa, rupa. Rupa jhana. Rupa jhana. It's a difficult word to uh, explain because it is certain that in the those four jhanas, that it, I think it's actually rupa jhana. Uh, it's not usually called rupa jhanas except in a few commentaries, Abhidharma. It's usually called just the four jhanas, mm -hmm. but the, the afterwards it's called arupa. Arupa. 
So the jhanas are just jhanas, patama jhana, if you look even down, yes. the, the last page four, five, six uh, of this, we can see just descriptions. Patamam jhana upa sampajana. You don't usually use the word rupa in front of the jhanas, but what it does do is that when you make the transition from the fourth jhana to the immaterial, then it's like going beyond all rupa. Yeah. What, so what, it, yeah. Sorry, what, sorry Ajahn. What exactly what you are saying? What I think what I am asking you is yeah. that it is uh, expressly it is mentioned that Arupa, that these monks who attain enlightenment they didn't have Arupa jhana, but the inference inference is that they had to have the four jhanas. Yes. All this sutta says is they didn't have the immaterial Arupa attainments. So that's the, the, what it said specifically there. But it doesn't mean they don't have the, uh, the four, four jhanas. And I mentioned the very wise words of Venerable Jnana Ponika, uh, the German uh, translator, that he said that you have to make the inferences based on the other large number, massive number of teachings of the Buddha which says that the jhanas are necessary, there's no enlightenment without them, and that that's part of the Eightfold Path. So you can't knock off one of the factors of an Eightfold Path thinking that thereby that one can find an easier way. Inferred, but not stated specifically here that it's the four yeah, jhanas are It's not are stated required. specifically, so one cannot make that inference that this sutta means you can get yes. enlightenment without a jhana. It doesn't say that. Yeah. We've been learning the Noble Eightfold Path, that yeah. that's the complete path and the, and the mm -hmm. only path. And obviously that ends up with Samma Samadhi. Mm -hmm. um, but am I right to say that uh, the, the first completion of this path leading to Samma Samadhi is probably not enough. Uh, in a sense that um, I think many monks accept that other um, sects, other ascetics, other, other you know, sadhu yeah. can have jhana. But yeah. uh, they, they are quite far from enlightenment. They don't even have their view fixed. Yeah. They think of the big self. But, but still they seem to have great samadhi. Yep. So you need all factors of the Eightfold Path. Not just number eight, not just number seven, the right mindfulness. You need also the right view as well. But, so, I, but I thought without some measure of right view, one cannot access Samadhi properly? You know, it seems like without some measure, but not sort of a full measure of right view. And a good example of that I was talking about that uh, to someone earlier, that even um, looking at examples of uh, medieval 13th century Christian um, saints, uh, Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, those two in particular, uh, their translations are just, I don't know if they're really trustworthy, but it does seem there may be a case there that to those two did experience some level of jhana. And then I asked myself, well, how can they, coming from such a, a background, 
of belief in a, a supreme being. And of course the answer comes that as you are meditating, there has to be a lot of letting go. And you know, for a Buddhist to let go, you know, it's a very scary thing. Actually to let go of control of your body, to stop willing, to stop doing something. But for a very, very devout Christian immersed in the belief of an all-powerful, omniscient, loving God, it could be quite simple in a sense to actually to let go. I'm going to totally let go of control. I'm going to disappear and let the Supreme Being take over. Just be still and know that thou art God, which is again in Psalms in the Christian Bible. To be able to do that, take such a letting go and be wonderful if some supreme being, I trust in the supreme, you take over, it makes it a little bit easier to let go. And I think that's probably, because Teresa Revealer, one thing was pretty clear, was you know, she would levitate. And she'd get into her bliss states, as recorded, some of the other nuns, I don't know if this happens over in Dharmasar when you're doing the chanting, uh, they would start floating up and they had to grab hold of her pretty quickly. And one of the monks told me there was some other saint and sometimes he would start floating off and just uh, he'd get sort of caught in the branches of a tree or something. You know, and that's where <laughs> it's like a balloon <laughs> floating off, you know, gets caught in the tree, tree branches and that's where they had to go and climb and get him down. Interesting stuff from, from those days. But it seems to be, I'm not sure, those people, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th century, and then it seems to have died out after that, those levitations and those deep states of samadhi. Yeah, because I know um, maybe more recently, like the Mahashi, Ma Mahashi, he seemed to have very impressive samadhi, but yeah. his teachings are way off the mark. Yeah, it's so you can have that like Devadatta. So, so it can, you can have that, you can you know, get into deep states of samadhi. N but not through willpower, there has to be some sort of letting go. And a letting go into a supreme being, a god, a, uh, a Brahma or whatever, uh, going to a union with God. That is one possibility. Mm. But that's without the wisdom. Whereas on the other hand, I, I read, I mean, I, I read based on my reading of the yeah. suttas, that there are even lay people, I mean, who, who even yeah. tried to kill the Buddha, obviously no jhana, but they say, the Buddha said he was on the path. Yeah, yeah. He was said he was on track. Yeah, yeah on the track. You no, know, yeah. he was on track, and to me that's more impressive than other sects. Exactly, you know, yes. The, uh, the ascetics or whatever with great meditative attainment. Yeah, indeed. But the thing is, how do you know you're on the path? This is one of the problems, that how do you know you have the, great, the right teacher or not? And that was the simile, that you have to get similes of being able to see uh, the simile of the being lost in the mist in the Scottish Highlands. When you go so far underneath the mist, then you can actually see your way, you find out where you are. Then you don't need to trust, you know, just following the stream down, following a, a stream downhill. You can get your bearings, you can see the path, you can see just where you, where you are in the scheme of things. Otherwise, by trusting other people, you can very easily walk off a cliff, you know, in the in the mist. So that's why it is 
again, it is um, difficult, but at least, you know, in the case of even um, uh, Jyoti Pala, you know, he got inspiration from seeing a, a Buddha before, enough to get on the path, enough to become sort of a, a once-returner, and getting reborn in this, his life. Remember, if he's a once-returner, he still got married to Yasodhara, and he still sort of was enjoying the pleasures of the senses until he saw you know, the old man, sick man, and dying man, and the holy man. So that sort of almost woke him up. And then afterwards, you know, finding, uh, didn't know what he was doing, trying to find some liberation, but then remembering. Well then, as a six-year-old, you know, fluking the jhanas under the rose apple tree, not many six-year-olds can do that. I don't know if your your, your son Shanti ever did that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be very proud of that. <laughs> but <coughs> the, the, the Siddhartha Gautama managed that. Something from his past life kicking in. Okay, well, yeah, so the uh, microphone. Say that in Christianity there's a big um, emphasis on surrender. That's just the oh, same, yeah, exactly, yeah. same way as saying letting go, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But if you're surrendering into nothing, it's a bit more scary. Indeed. Than if you're surrendering into an all loving, powerful, in the bliss of a God, yeah. Oh, you get some questions from here. Yes, one from Peter. <laughs> Hasn't yet. <laughs> but, no, <laughs> but some people it's helped in a sense. There was this one lady who, when I told her in a meditation retreat, just to take her hands off the steering wheel, feet off the pedals, and she had that dream of going over the cliff. No, with me sitting next to her and put the brakes on. I said, no, hands off the steering wheel, feet off the pedals. And so she went over the cliff. And as she was hurtling down to certain death, she saw at the bottom of the cliff that, you know, it was bent over a bit and there was a road and it had a very uh, tight right-hand turn. And so we're hurtling and the, the car just leveled itself at the bottom of the cliff. And then she went to grab the wheel to actually to turn right, said, hands off the steering wheel, feet off the pedals, no brakes. And then the car automatically by itself made a perfect right turn and was just very safely going across along the road with no damage at all. <laughs> so she said, well, I have a measure of faith in you, at least in my dreams, it worked. <laughs> so I said, next time, do it when you're meditating. is right view, so yeah. if one had the right view of non-self, then it wouldn't be, it'd be less oh. and less scary, wouldn't it? Yeah, if indeed. This is the point that uh, the Eightfold Path, you know, first of all, it's you know, all over the place, a bit of this and a bit of that. But the first factor which really gels and becomes perfected is the right view of a stream winner. So once you have the right view of a stream winner, you know, there's uh, you know, you're not in control, there's nothing here. Of course, then you have the, what I call the right motivations of letting go, kindness and gentleness. 
There's no sort of me and get out of my way, I'm meditating. There's no force, aggression, anger. This is beautiful kindness. It's not about me anymore. So, from the right view then, of course, and the right motivation, which is really pure, all the precepts. You know, it's not about you, you know, you don't want anything. So all the precepts come up in perfection. And then from that, the, the right effort becomes the one of letting go. It's based on kindness, based on gentleness, based on renunciation. Based on just making sure you're guarding your senses rather than uh, indulging them. And then from that, you know, there's mindfulness. Having restrained the five hindrances, which is what those have already done, then you can actually practice the four Satipatthanas. And it's only a matter of time before the mind gets very, very still and peaceful and enters into a jhana. So they know that there is a sequential part of the Eightfold Path once you're a stream winner. But before then it's a bit of this and a bit of that. We've got some questions from overseas. As well as psychic powers, are there also healing powers? And of course there are healing powers, but sometimes you wonder, you heal somebody and they get sick again? The Buddha's healing powers is probably best illustrated by the story of Kisa Gotami, which I think many of you, I hope, will remember. Kisa Gotami, single mother, had lost her child. The only thing that she had in life, I don't know what happened to her husband, but one child and it died. And she was so um, grief-stricken. She went from place to place and someone healed my child, eventually went to see the Buddha. The Buddha had a big reputation of being as psychic powers. And so, asked the Buddha, please heal my kid, bring her back to life. And so that's where the Buddha said, well, I, uh, what I need you to do is to go and get three sesame seeds, each from, a <coughs> each from a different house in town. But they have to come from a house where no one has ever died. <laughs> and so what uh, Kisa Gautami did, she went into town, really sort of thinking that, yes, I'm going to get these sesame seeds, that's really cheap, and then I get three, and then uh, my kid will be cured. Went to the first house, you got a sesame seed? Yeah, I can give you a sesame seed. But, 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 anyone ever died in here? Oh yes, yeah, someone's died in here. Next house, oh, I can't use it, thank you very much. Went to the next house, someone had died in there. Went to the next house, someone had died in there. And went to so many houses in the village, and every house someone had died. And then, of course, she realized the Buddha's skillful means. She realized that the death does not just visit her son, it visits everybody. And so she went back to see the Buddha, buried, did a funeral service for her son, and then became a Buddhist nun, a bhikkhuni, and became one of the great bhikkhunis, fully enlightened. So instead of healing her son, the Buddha healed her mind. All healings are temporary. They take away some pain, but after a while, what else happens? You get sick again.
So healing powers, yeah, okay. But is that really the purpose? So cycle, yeah, there are healing powers, they they do work. But they're not really the ones which you know people just focus on. <laughs> How does one resist becoming arrogant once attains such psychic powers? To keep remembering, put them into the context of the Buddhist teachings. That, yeah, they're nice tricks. Or as once happened when the Buddha was, uh, went with, this is in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, uh, if I get it correctly, that the Buddha went with the following of monks to the banks of the Ganges River, and there was one ascetic there, a wanderer, who said, no, I've practiced for about 30 or 40 years and now I can walk over the Ganges by myself. And the Buddha said, what a waste of time that was. You can actually get a ferry for a couple of cents. <laughs> it's pretty, <laughs> pretty cheeky to say this poor little wanderer practiced all his life to walk on water. And what do you want to walk on water for? <laughs> so the psychic powers in themselves now what are you doing them for? A lot of times, if those psychic powers happen, they happen as you know the the free gift in the cornflakes packet, just the extra, which a lot of times it's best you don't show off. And how do psychic attainments come to be? What are the psychic powers? I mentioned some of those. Uh, how do they come to be? Is that sometimes that just <coughs> The mind is far greater than the physical world. Remember that little story said, opening the door of your heart, what's the biggest thing in the world? Is you know, one of my friend's uh, daughters, five-year-old at school, when the teacher asked, what's the biggest thing in the world? One person said, my daddy, another said, an elephant, another said, a mountain. My friend's daughter said, biggest thing in the world is my eye. What are you talking about? Well, my eye can see her daddy, can see a mountain and an elephant and so much more. If all of that could fit into my eye, my eye must be the biggest thing in the world. Nice piece of logic. And of course, in that book, I took it a little bit further. Your mind is the biggest thing. Your mind can see everything your eye can see and things you can just imagine. Your mind can, uh, can hear, can smell, real and imaginary smells can taste, can feel, real in imaginary pains, and it can has its own area of knowledge. Everything you will ever experience, or can ever experience, real or imaginary, can fit into your mind. So your mind's the biggest thing in the world. Because the, <coughs> the mind transcends this world, that's where you can understand how psychic powers can come from. The mind powers, far greater, than the world, is part of the mind. So those things, they just happen sometimes. But usually good monks just, and nuns just keep them quiet. Still remember, <laughs> in Magnolia Street days, and I remember Lynn, you were there, this, I don't know, were you there at the time, this little kid, maybe seven or eight years of age, comes sat right in front of Ajahn Chakra and say, well, how much? What are we talking about how much? How many inches or feet. What are you talking about? How many inches and feet can you levitate? Come on, I want to see. See you levitate. <laughs> That's what the kid was interested in. 
how high Ajahn uh, Jakaro could levitate. <laughs> you don't do such things. Very public. And of course, it causes problems like it did with that monk. I think one of the monks gave me his name. Do you know his name who just got, kept on levitating, getting caught in the tree branches? Saint, something like that. I think, I think Mudito, he knows all about that guy. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, so what? Just cause the problem for people. Or you get the monk, Dabba Malaputa, that he was the one who could make, it was actually quite a useful psychic power in those days, he could make his finger sort of light up. So, you know, it's the fire element. <laughs> and so, you know, he's enlightened, he had nothing else to do. He wasn't a good teacher. But he said, what can I do to be of use to the Sangha? So he lived in Rajagaha. Most of you who've actually visited Rajagaha, it was just a circle of mountains and many places there. There's a bamboo grove, there's a vulture's peak, there's the Isigili, the gullet of the seers or the Rishis. There's many little places in there where the monks would stay. And so some of these visiting monks, they would deliberately arrive late, in a, you know, late at night. They did that on purpose so that uh, Dabba Malaputa, he was uh, the guest monk. So he had to assign them lodgings and say, oh, where do you want to say, oh, the furthest possible lodging? Because they wanted to see his magic finger. So he light his fingers, he didn't have any torches or any flashlights so, or any street lights, so he'd light his finger at a nice light and he would show them the way to wherever they wanted to go. And so he was so good at that. I mean, if there was one of those at Dhammasara, you know, who could you know, show the light with the finger, of course, oh, I'm going to go and see this. So he deliberately, you know, check in late just to get taken to the furthest cootie <laughs> with a magic lit finger. So at least that psychic power did have a use to it. <laughs> you don't need to waste money on batteries and lights. So anyway, it's just, it's just the, the nature of the mind is stronger than the world. The psychic powers. Da, da, da. And of course, every now and again, okay, as a mark, have you ever seen these things? And of course, you know, the answer is yes, but you don't usually tell people about them when it happens in other people. Reading minds is very common. Hearing things from long distance is not that common. Seeing even, oh, remembering past lives is very common these days. So many of these things can be done. But you know, they want the real things, walking on water. So, Nah, much better to use a boat. <laughs> okay, so any other comments or questions? How they come about just by the power of your mind. That's one of the reasons why the samadhi does give you that power. Remember when I was saying about the power of mindfulness, the stillness, collects all the energy, like taking a magnifying glass and putting it outside under the sun, collecting all of it together, get some energy, can actually burn a piece of paper because it focuses energy, brings it all together. Ekagata come into a oneness of the mind. That type of thing, you can feel energy happening. But be very careful not to misuse it. Okay, enough, any questions? Can't think of one. Ah, very good. So, 
Uh, could you read my mind? I'm going to finish off with this wonderful story <laughs> about, <laughs> apparently this happened in Thailand a long time ago, that there was a minister who was a big know-it-all, you know, and he was actually very kind, very good, very smart and very capable, but really upset other people, you know, always being right. So the other ministers, they decided to, now, let's sort of set him up so he gets kicked out of the palace. So they all met together in secret and they said, how can we get rid of this person? He's so arrogant. This is maybe our plan. We will praise him in front of the king, his majesty the king. Praise him so much. You're so wonderful. And the king is so lucky to have a minister like you. And keep on praising him and praising him. Yeah, yeah, we're so lucky to have somebody like me. Yeah, I'm so wise. And then when he's arrogant enough, when he's full of pride, that's when we will ask him, you're probably so wise, you can read other people's minds. And if he said yes, then he said, okay, prove it. Read our mind. And of course, how can you prove that what he says is true? If I say, I'm going to read your mind, Venerable Upeka, uh, you can say, whatever, even if I do get it right, say, no, that was wrong. And how can, who can prove what's right and what's wrong in somebody's mind? So, whatever they said, whatever he said they were thinking, they'd always say, no, you got it wrong. So, the next morning when they, the court was in meeting, they started praising this minister, oh, he's so wise, he's, apparently this actually happened. So wise, so wonderful, so smart, you're so wonderful. <coughs> so lucky, your majesty, to have a minister like this. And then when he was full of pride, yeah, yeah, that's right, you're so lucky to have someone like me in your court. And then they sort of thought it was the right time. So you're probably so wise, you can read other people's minds. Said, oh yeah, I can read other people's minds. He'd taken the bait, fallen into the trap. So they said, well, please tell His Majesty what we're all thinking. And they resolved whatever he said they were thinking, even if he got it right, they would say, no, you're wrong. Just to put him in his place. Without any hesitation, this minister said, each one of you, I can read your minds, each one of you, is thinking kind, loyal thoughts to His Majesty the King. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> Better let him be right than have your head chopped off. <laughs> so that was wisdom. So, so if you want to tell your <laughs> tell your 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 parents that you can read their mind. What are you thinking? I'm thinking, how lucky I am to, to have a parent like you. <laughs> so anyway, that's using wisdom. Okay, so I think we can finish off now. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Okay, let's just do the bowing now.
Supatipano Bhagavato Sawaka Sango Sangang Namami Namami 